This is Music Ed Amplified. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Music Ed Amplified podcast. This is a place to talk about all things music education and also a place where we discuss what it means to be an anti-racist, anti-biased, anti-ableist human being and educator. And in that vein, I wanted to start right off by sharing something that I recently read that really set me to thinking. The post was written on March 17th, 2022 by Hanif Fossil on Instagram. Hanif is the co-founder and managing partner of the Center for Equity and Inclusion, a consulting agency which supports organizations and companies seeking to eliminate disparities, advance equity, and create truly inclusive workplaces. And I am sharing this with his permission. I will also share ways to follow Hanif's work in the episode notes, and I hope you will check him out. In his post, which was about diversity, equity, and inclusion work, or DEI, he wrote the following, quote, really beginning to sort out my thoughts and feelings about DEI, feeling like DEI cannot live into its promise because white people are in many ways holding it captive. Meaning that in what has turned into a billion-dollar industry, white people do what they have always done, profit off it all at the expense of people of color. In other words, white people get to say that their organizations are engaging in race equity, they get to make anti-racist statements, and they even get to be semi-woken up by people of color. Meanwhile, white people's comfort, their knowing, their positionality, their rules, their learning— all get to be centered in DEI initiatives. The minute any of these things are threatened, they disengage, go on the attack, or just push POC out. At best, white people have allowed us to sit in the passenger seat and at times even allowed us to give directions. They still get to decide whether those directions will be taken. However, we are not to ever actually sit in the driver's seat, and white folks can't take the idea of sitting in the passenger seat or, God forbid, not be in the car at all. Think it's time for us to begin building our own cars. End quote. I don't think I need to add anything really, because what he is describing so succinctly and so powerfully, and the feelings that it evokes for me, and hopefully you, are very clear-cut. I have to ask myself how often I am centering myself, and how often I'm still trying to wrestle control of the narrative in spite of saying that I don't want to do so. This is a huge part of why I wanted to invite today's guests to take over the podcast, the truth is that these three educators who have all been on the podcast before have so much to offer, so much to teach us, and they don't need me asking them questions. So I offered them the mic and let them decide the direction and flow of the conversation. If you haven't already, I encourage you to check out their solo episodes to get to know them even better. And in the beginning of this part one of their discussion, they'll each introduce themselves so, without further ado, I present to you Maria A. Ellis, Jasmine Fripp, and Carla Bell. Should we start with introductions, just brief in- introductions? I think that would be swell. You want to start it off, Maria? 
Sure. Well, I am Maria A. Ellis. I'm from St. Louis, Missouri. I am a uh, high school choir director. I'm also a community choir director, church choir director. Hope soon to be an elementary choir director again soon, hopefully. And uh, I create diverse music education resources. And I have a company called Girl Conductor. And I host a radio show called Bach and Beyonce for classic radio, classical radio. That's enough about me. Ooh, well, I am Jasmine Fripp. I am a high school music teacher out here in Nashville, Tennessee. I'm originally from Charleston, and I'm also known in the music educator world as a passionate Black educator. Uh, basically, I work with music educators and making sure they're implementing anti-racist practices within their classroom as well as diverse curriculum. Um, I also work with them just to make sure they're being effective teachers in the classroom as well. And yeah, I'm just out here doing what it does. Um, my name is Carla Bell, uh, also known as the Graceful Educator. Um, and I am a high school music teacher. I also teach choir. Um, and I am in Delaware. I coach, I mentor, and I walk alongside teachers and help them implement graceful practices, which include things like trauma-informed care, equity, humanity. Um, I also specialize in student leadership, and I help new teachers build strong classroom community. And that's me. Well, we love to see it. So the I guess the purpose of the of us taking this over was the session we call on what you think, sis. And it's three black women's perspectives on the current state of music education. Can we just start with that before we get into a question? Like the state of music education. I think that's I really think that's kind of loaded mm. in a few ways. I'll give my opinion first and then I'll let you all jump in. I must say that I'm the newest music educator on this panel, as this is my second career. I started in college in 2013 studying music education and then graduated in 2017. So I've been a technically a teacher, I guess, for about five years. And this is like my first year kind of in an actual classroom. When I was going through undergrad, I felt that my music education was lacking because it was really centered on European culture and it didn't center on all of the music of America. And I found that heartbreaking because music that I know and love, gospel music, which is my, my heart, and just all different types of black music was always othered and not seemed as the norm. But then 2020 came and brought us a whole lot of stuff, including COVID and, and the death of George Floyd, which caused probably all three of us to be a part of these conversations where people wanted to talk about equity and inclusion and diversity and things of that nature. And there was a, a, a hunt to find black composers and women composers and all these different diverse things. And um and that was nice, but I feel like in 2022, I feel like some of those efforts are gone 
are not as uh, popular per se as they were back then. I'm not saying that all. I'm not saying that all efforts are like that. I'm not saying that, but I do feel like in some ways we've taken some steps back, and we haven't totally moved forward. But you know what? What say? What you think, sis? <laughs> I agree. I feel like the same energy that we had in 2020 has definitely been out over time. And I I just feel like I'm seeing two sides. I'm seeing either like some people are just no longer a part of the conversation and their efforts, quote unquote, or their actions, quote unquote, were very performative or I feel like everything is becoming very slow and deliberate and it's, it's very frustrating um, at times. I, under, I understand like some processes are simply going to take time, but when it comes to ensuring that our kids are being seen within our program, I just think that's something that needs to be done a little quicker that that's where I am actually a very um unique perspective I am the only black music teacher in my district and so I personally was othered for a very long time where you know I walked in the door you know as we like to say you know we like to say wrote and note like I, I walked in the door with that mindset and I was othered um, and I was, you know, kind of pointed at, she's not professional. She's not what's good for kids until the pandemic, until George Floyd. And then all of a sudden I was the expert in the room. I mean, we have to do something different, you know, to reach, to reach kids. And I think what I'm seeing now is you want to use me as a resource, but you don't want to talk about the harm that was caused before. Mm. You don't want to talk about the harm that was done to other, other black teachers or other teachers of color. Like you don't, you want to move forward because I'm in Delaware. So you want to move forward, but you don't want to talk about what happened. And to me, you need both. You need to be able to say, you know what? Some harm was done. And some harm was done because we didn't know better. But now that we know better, we got to do better. And so when we talk about moving forward, some of the reason why I believe that we've stalled on a level is because we haven't, in big broad terms, we haven't gone back to acknowledge the harm that was done. And not just here, but abroad. I mean, if you think about the state of the nation, there's a lot of things we haven't rectified as a whole. Mm-hmm. that we just won't acknowledge. And so we're going to continue to see that where we're only going to make so much progress because we just won't go back and acknowledge the harm that was done so that we can effectively move forward. And that's what I'm seeing. That's a whole episode that we can spend <laughs> a lot of time talking because I want to, oh, I can dive into and just talk about just the harm. And the harm that's still happening, I don't even think people even realize what they're doing. There was a song that was performed at Southern ACDA where um, I think the group was called Cantorai. 
Uh, uh, kaleidoscope. A kaleidoscope. I'm sorry. Kaleidoscope. I'm sorry. And mm-hmm. I think the first line of the song said something to the effect like, "You thought I was the janitor." Mm. And, and you basically, even though I was the performer, you thought I was the, was the janitor, and you uh, you othered me. Um, you said I should play in the NFL. I, I think they said that line like five times. You thought I should play in the NFL, but just all these different comments that people make, not even realizing that you're still othering me when you make those types of statements. Wow. Okay. And it happens way more often than people think. Yeah. Yeah, I can remember uh, going to a conference not too long ago, and I had arrived late, and so I still had on my hoodie from the plane ride, and I had on jeans or whatnot. Uh, but my hoodie said girl conductor with the, you know, with the four pattern. So anybody who's a musician should know that I'm some type of music something because there's a whole music symbol on the shirt. And I remember uh, my boss introducing me to various conductors. And I remember people like looking down on me or not wanting to give me the time of day. And I I, I couldn't tell. I said, maybe it's because of what I have on. Maybe it's, maybe it's my skin color. I don't know. But I could tell it was like awkwardness, like we don't want to be bothered with this person. The next morning I had to present at this session. And so I came downstairs and I was dressed in heels and all that kind of stuff because I love my shoes. Um, But I came downstairs dressed and ready to present. And um, people not knowing that I was the presenter was like, oh, you look so nice. Are you going to a wedding? Where are you going? Blah, blah, blah. And I said... I'm the presenter. And they were like, oh. And then coming into the room, and after my session, people were standing in line like I was Mickey Mouse at Disney World, um, (laughs) waiting to speak or whatnot. But I wanted to really say, remember, I'm the same person that last night Mm -hmm. you wouldn't speak to. Last night I was nobody. But now that you've sat through my session and, and you feel that I'm qualified now, you know, now you want to speak. So I, I just think people, we have to just be cautious. We have to be, like, we can't say we want the diversity stuff and inclusion, and then we still don't do not do it. Because if not, we're just wasting time. It's interesting. You know, as you were speaking, I was thinking about, there are a lot of teachers that do the same thing to our kids. Hmm. When they, you know, when they walk in and you already have this guard up, you have this lens on, you have this bias Happens a lot to black boys um, where when they walk into a space, you automatically throw your guard up and you don't know what they're carrying. Mm. And I mean that in a good way. You don't know what's in them. You don't know what they're capable of. You don't know their potential. You've already assessed who you think they're going to be when they walk in the room. And so now, now we are hyper-focused on, on making students of color feel more comfortable in a space but have we rectified their harm as well? Have we taken the time and we taken a step back and said, what harm have I caused them? Mm. And what can I do now to bring that forward and to create change? So there was a question that says, I'm working hard, because it's a tie right into what you just said. I'm working hard to acknowledge my implicit bias and dispel it so I can better connect to, encourage and empower all students in my music room, I am seeing some successes, but I too often fail day to day because I find myself 
addressing some of the black boys in my class who seem to be acting out physically and verbally at a higher rate. That question stuck out to me when I was student teaching. Um, I student taught in an all-white school. And when I was doing my elementary lessons, I noticed that the teacher constantly called out the little black boy for doing stuff. And I just, I, I never said anything. I just watched everything he did. Uh, let's say his name was Demarcus. Demarcus, put the pencil down. Demarcus, put your hand down. Demarcus. Every day she was saying something to Demarcus. But Johnny was doing more and beyond. And Johnny was not getting his name called. Mm-hmm. And so one day I finally asked her, I said, do you, do you realize that you, that you call out Demarcus more than you call out Johnny? And Johnny's doing the exact same things. And she's like, oh, I never realized that. I said, yes, it just you should be cautious of that. That you call his name so much. So I had a conversation with Demarcus. And I said, Demarcus, all right, me and you, me and you, we're going to form a deal. I need you to be still while we in class today. I just need you to be still. He was like, okay, I got you. And he was on his best behavior. And I don't know. I don't know if that's because some people would say, well, you know, you're black. And so maybe he sees you as a mother figure or something like that. I, I kind of go with that a little bit, but maybe it's because I gave him a chance. <laughs> I mean, you talk about trauma and stuff, Carlos. I mean, how does that affect the kid that they're always being the one that's being called out or othered and all that kind of stuff? How does that affect them? And Jazz, you may know too, but. When I saw the question, actually, there were a couple of things that I was thinking about. The first one is, what is keeping us from seeing Black boys? Because that's the example. What is keeping us from seeing Black boys as humans? What is keeping us from seeing them the same or different as the white boy who does the same thing? Mm-hmm. Why, why is it that we think that their level of humanity is different than the next kid? What is on the inside of us that is triggered when we see the behavior that this person is displaying? Because at the end of the day, we're all human beings that have very unique uh, experiences. We have um, things that have happened to us, whether we ask for them or not. But our life and the things that have happened are part of who we are. We bring that every day. And so the, the white kid next to him may have had similar experiences but we treat the black boy different. Why? What is it that keeps us from viewing him as the human that he is? The second question I have to ask is, have you ever talked to the kid one-on-one? Like, have you had a private conversation with them and said, hey, I see so much in you. I see so much in you. I love how you fill in the blank. I love how you make your own rhythms. I love how you stomp to the beat. I love how you fill in the blank and say, talk to me about how that makes you feel when you're moving. And when you're part of class, how does that make you feel? Because what are you getting to him as a human and you're connecting with him on a human level. And then after that, you can address some other things. You may find out he's hungry. You may find out he's sleepy. You may find out he had a rough class period before and it's just coming out here. But when you are able to connect on a human level, you can find out a whole lot, a whole lot more on how to serve him. He might be bored Mm. and he might be acting in a certain way, really, because he's bored. 
The other thing I, I want to question or challenge is, have we evaluated what compliance is? Like when you are in a space, what do you deem as good behavior? Mm. What do you deem as bad behavior? Is it bad or is it just not what everybody else is doing? Is it good? Are we, are we looking at something very binary where it's something that's just different than what everyone else is doing? So when we look at what that student or what that person is displaying, is it as bad as we say it is? Sometimes it is, sometimes it's not. But are we using a binary lens to assess what's happening? Hope that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. That's a, that's a good point because certain things, I guess, and some of that stuff may be individual. Certain things don't, don't bother me per se, but it may bother another teacher. Mm-hmm. So for me, if a kid is, is wiggling per se, I'm going to go back to my elementary days. If a kid is like wiggling while they're sitting down, that, that may not bother me. But if a kid says what to me, that triggers something different in me. So you may get a, a, a different response from me because if you said, if I call your name and you say what, then my whole attitude is going to change because I'm not one of your little friends. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. But, you know, I, I think that that differs. But 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 I'm the same with all the kids, with all the kids, you know. And I think teachers in general, like, we just have to be cautious that we we have to be the same to all the kids. That's why I'm a, I'm a big component about, like, how black kids or black people are represented in the classroom in general. If the only time you represent our culture is, is through slavery or civil rights, you've to me, you've already othered us as something different instead of just letting kids be kids. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense, you know? So now that's my yeah. thought. Uh, kind of piggybacking off of Carla's statement. My, my question is what kind of relationship did she have with Johnny and what kind of relationship did she have with DeMarcus? Mm. Because a lot of times, like if you sit down, you get to know the kid mm-hmm. and you get to learn their behavioral patterns and even just like building that relationship with them, you either A, you build an understanding of why they move the way they move or like what certain body language what what exactly does it mean? And two, if you're building this relationship with the kid, it the kid is less likely to quote unquote act out in your class. So there's that. And we have got to stop like just automatically criminalizing our black boys. And I'm gonna go even further to say it's not just white teachers. Mm. Because yes. It's a lot of white supremacy culture that people of the global majority, we have to dismantle within ourselves because there, there were some behaviors, especially working in a charter school. There are certain behaviors that I had to learn how to react differently to because for so long it was, if a kid is beating on a desk, automatically give them a referral. And it's like, no, if I have to sit for eight hours straight, I would get fidgety too. Like once again, when did these young boys, young girls stop being human? Like we've, we've just got to get to a point where we stop criminalizing, especially our young black boys. And truthfully, at the end of the day, 
that goes with checking our own bias at the door and doing the internal work. Yeah. I I, I look at adults in, in meetings. We have PD sessions all day long. Who we? I'm bad. I am t- like, I would probably like, especially now, I'd probably be one of the kids that get kicked out or like beating on the desk or fishing. Like even now I'm in a turning chair, just going back and forth. <laughs> and it's only been like maybe 15, 20 minutes that we've been talking. So, but I'm just saying like, so if we as adults still fidget and, and can't sit still, like read the room. Mm-hmm. If you got a whole bunch of kids that's starting to fidget, you know, maybe your lesson boring. You maybe need to fix that. Your lesson boring. They don't see themselves in the lesson. They don't see how it applies to their lives. Maybe you're not appealing to the type of learner they are. Maybe Demarcus needs to go move around. Because trust me, I got a couple of Demarcuses in my room. If I don't have something with movement, or I stole this one from Carla, if I don't have some fidgets on board, it is a wrap. It, I ended up, wrap. I'm telling I ended up buying, I don't know if y'all remember the, the long erasers, the, the, the little wiggly long erasers. I bought a couple of them because I have kids that like to bang and tap, you know, whatever. And when they began to feel that, like that urge to bang and tap, they went to just go grab a couple of those and they kept banging and tapping, but that banging and tapping was silent. <laughs> like, so if we're doing something that people need to be quiet for, and again, this is structural. So like, if it has to be quiet, I'll provide fidgets or eraser, long erasers or something that they can release that nervous energy with. And then they can still participate because you'd be surprised how many kids are engaged, even though they're moving. Like they might be tapping whatever it is they're doing, but they're still very much engaged. They're still very much participating. And again, back to like Jasmine's point about this whole white supremacy culture thing is what is considered good, right? What is considered perfect? What is considered standard? And if we think students, you know, standing quietly, you know, yes, yes, ma'am. If we think that that's the gold standard, anybody that doesn't fit into that, we've already criminalized. So we have to understand that it looks different. It should have always looked different, but now we don't have an excuse. Plus we're coming out of two years of virtual learning where we were at home in our fuzzy socks and we were allowed to move whenever we wanted to get up and go to the bathroom and all that other stuff. That stuff's not going overnight. (laughs) Okay. It's not not going overnight. And so we can't change it. So we need to adjust. We have to adjust. So that might mean letting go some of your power, decentering and saying, what are some things in my room that I should be allowing students to choose or do that before I had control over. So now I have to just think differently about it. So Jazz, you brought up teaching at a charter school. Um, there was a question that was set that says, I would love to hear how they would hope to see teachers in private schools or any schools with majority culture students foster dialogue about minority cultures. What should we know about making sure we don't inadvertently say something that makes our BIPOC students feel more uncomfortable with their classmates? Mm. She said, in a private school I teach at, I would say at least half or more of the students I have that aren't white are adopted into a family who are from a different culture than their birth family. That isn't necessarily a bad thing, but sometimes it means the topic of race is avoided in the home. 
And I've had a couple of families complain that I've said something in class that the students never heard before, such as trying to avoid music with offensive history. Ah, that's that's loaded. That's a, that's very a loaded. loaded. I I can speak to like some of the dialogue um, because I know my classroom. We engage in a lot of discourse um, throughout the year. Um, and the way I prep them for discourse for like just the first two quarters is as crazy as it sounds through icebreakers. Mm -hmm. Um, and I just ask them a series of questions over time. And some of them, some of them I do on purpose and some of them, I actually have no ideas going this route. It becomes very cultural. So we're, we're introducing culture early on, like, what are some dishes that you eat during the holidays? Anything with food automatically brings in culture, uh, automatically. And just getting the kids comfortable each, with each other and building those relationships first and trying to build that family atmosphere. Because if you have those relationships, then when it comes time to have those harder conversations, it's going to be... 10 times easier for people to not want only one give their opinion but two they're more receptive of various opinions so i am big on building relationships i feel like it just solves almost everything i don't know but yeah definitely relationship building and setting norms before discourse you got to set those norms like, what does respect look like to you? How will you let the teacher or anyone in the class know, like, if you feel something was offensive? Just setting those early on really helps with those tough conversations. Yeah, we played this or that in class yesterday. And I purposely asked questions that were controversial and they had to, they had to, but well, this is high school. They had to give a, they had to take a stand on it. And then they had to articulate why they felt like that. And it was very, it was good for me to see them engage each other respectfully and not cuss and all that kind of stuff. Cause that was one of the rules I put out at the beginning. Like we're not going to be here cause, but that's, that's a norm at my school. We, you know, we, we let our words fly and that's, that's what they do. So that's what they do. But it was good to see them engage. And I didn't I didn't really have to do a whole lot, but just monitor and just make sure people weren't talking over each other. But one of the questions was I have a I have one white so I teach at an all black school. Mm -hmm. Um it's the oldest black school west of the Mississippi River. And I have one white student in the classroom. And I asked, should white students be allowed to go to this school as it was intended for black kids to go to? Mm. And it was very interesting the responses that I received. And even from my white student, it was interesting his response because in some ways he said, no, I shouldn't be allowed to go here because I'm white. But his classmate said, but you should be allowed to go here because you cool. So <laughs> you should be allowed to go. You know what I mean? So, but just for them to have that, that dialogue, I thought that was just amazing. Now, on the flip to that, in my in my elementary choir, I was doing a um, a concert that had a middle school choir and my high school choir. 
and we were singing America the Beautiful. And I was informing the kids, you know, how some, some, at that time, I think Donald Trump was, I think he was in office, but there was a whole bunch of controversy going around about him in that era or whatnot. And uh, I think I made this, I think I made the statement that everybody doesn't believe that the president treats everybody fair. Um, And I was really cautious how I worded this because I knew I had white students and I had black students. And um, one of my, my director pulled me to the side and was like, you know, one of the parents complained because they said that, um, you know, you said that the president doesn't treat everybody fair and they felt that that was really offensive. And I said, but what about my black students and my, my Islamic students that are in here who have not been treated fair? You know what I mean? I said, so we can't play both sides. I can't say, I can't make that statement because this kid would be offended because if not, then the other kids are offended. You know what I mean? So I think teachers have to walk, they have to walk the line, but you have to, I don't know, I just I just think you should always just tell the truth. And if the parents get mad over the truth, you just get mad over the truth, but the truth is the truth. Can I say something real quick? Yeah. <sighs> Truthfully, people ask me how to deal with white parents all the time. And if I'm being honest, a huge, like, 95% of me purposely chose to work with black and brown kids because I want to pour into them and give them the same opportunities that I've always had. Mm-hmm. But that 5%, truthfully, I want to be able to go into my classroom and teach the truth and give them the truth without having to deal with it. it uh, that 5%, is my mental health mm. and being comfortable in the spaces that I walk in. So I, I just, I've always thought that, but I've never really said it out loud. So even like that experience of having to deal with white parents, I've never outside of student teaching. And that was like all of four months. Mm-hmm. And I never really had a parent complain about anything like that that's me personally. I think when you have relationships with the students and the parents, I think that kind of makes it easier. That the student whose parent has something to say wasn't my student. It was a student mm-hmm. that was in a different choir. But I think relationship plays a huge part huge in part. it. Because I think like right now my my other high school group, I got all kind of kids in there. Um all colors and, and everything, but we have relationship. Mm-hmm. So we can have those conversations and nobody goes home feeling some kind of way. And if you do disagree with something somebody said, then we have that conversation and we, we learn from each other. What say you, sis? Carla Bell. Um, I know she got something. <laughs> I know. I went back and I kind of like reviewed the question a little bit. And one of the things I was thinking about was it's going to happen. It's going to happen. You're going to say something. Something's going to happen where the truth is going to get told and somebody's not going to like it. And the truth is teachers are agents of change. We are social justice agents (laughs) by nature of the profession. We are bound to the truth. We're bound to the truth. And so, you know, whether you're an elementary, middle or high, teacher, you know, and you understand 
what is developmentally appropriate for your kids Mm -hmm. and still tell them the truth. And because you are a professional, right? That means you have resources to support the truth that you're telling. So understand that the parent might be upset, but the kid might be very grateful. There are so many students who are taking a sigh of relief because somebody is finally telling the truth. Somebody is is hearing it clearly, unapologetically. They're hearing the truth. And I say it all the time. This generation is brilliant. They're brilliant. Mm -hmm. They are out of this world amazing. And we are doing them a disservice if we only consider their fragility. There's so much more to them that we just don't give them credit for. Understand when you signed up to be a teacher, you signed up for change. You signed up for justice. You signed up for truth. And that comes with the territory push back. So no matter whether you have um, kindergartners, you have eighth graders, you have seniors, expect pushback from parents. Expect it because it's going to come. But when you are armed and you've done your own work, you're ready. And that's the key, I think, is have you done your own work to the point where you can be confronted when it happens? Mm. Do you have the capacity to handle confrontation or are you going to fold under your own fragility? Mm. And that to me is something that has to be addressed. So let's go there. Let's let's talk about that work. Mm. Mm-hmm. Because I think if we answer this question, that may help with a whole lot of, of these questions that's on here. Sure. The work that, that people have to do. Because I don't have a background in classical music, there was never a day that my daddy said, let me turn on some Bach to make myself feel. <laughs> never. Jerome wasn't going to do it, baby. It wasn't going to happen. Um, the closest we got to some opera singing was, I think, Order My Steps. Um, <laughs> come on, come on, GMWA. <laughs> I think that's the closest we got to opera in my house. So when I, when I went to get my music degree, I had to study and study and study all of these different composers and arrangers. I had to know their time periods. I had to know when they was born. I had to know what was going on in the world during all these different times for these classes so I can get this degree. And then somebody put me through another test so I could be a certified teacher where I had to go back and then spit all this information out again. So I had to do some work, some studying to get to know all these great people, as we call them, musicians, right? But I feel sometimes, sometimes we as teachers don't put in that work when it's something that's not ours. <gasps> See, I was shocked when I went to a uh, reading session during my second year of school and found the gospel music in the multicultural section. And I said, how can American music, gospel, be multicultural? Help me understand that. Wow. And so I had to ask the questions. How is, what, what culture are we considering 
normal culture, if this American music is in the multicultural section, what's the standard of culture? So like, I, I think the work is finding, I'm a, I'm a, some of the work is reading some books and, and studying the other people's cultures, I guess, if you want to call it that. But getting an understanding. I want I don't have a things that I didn't know about when I was in school. I sought tutors. I went to the library. I found books. I'm trying to figure out why that's different from anything else that we as educators do. I I have a question. It's burning and it's on this topic. I mean it's right along the lines. I've never been able to figure this out. I don't understand why we have this hyper focus on classical music. When you've had a rough day at work, when you get in the car, please tell me you turn on, you don't turn on Bach. I know you don't. Mm -mm. I know, I know you don't. If you just broke up with your boo, you're not turning on Mozart. I can, I can guarantee you, you're not. Why? I don't understand why we are so focused on this when that's not the music you live by. Like even when you get in the car and you turn on rock, you turn on smooth jet, whatever, you don't turn that stuff on. You turn on something else. If I'm having a particularly rough day, it might be Adele, Mary J. Blige, okay? But my thing is, why do we hold that in such high regard? I don't understand. You don't because, live by that. Because it's what they can teach. Because that because they were taught that that is I but that's not what you live by. So even if that's what you learn, that isn't what you live by. So now we have a we got two different conversations. Am I am I missing something here? If no, music it, is a, a human expression, right? It's it's an expression of who we are, what we experience, what we feel. Why is there a difference? Help, help me. <laughs> it's like, like I said, it's, a, um, it's what they know how to teach. And I, I've always said, like, I feel like the cycle definitely starts with college because college cranks out the music educators and then inspire other folks. But I feel like they hold that so closely to them because it's what they know how to teach. If you put them in front of a group, let's say a group of black kids watch and- it, Watch it, Jasmine, watch it. You finna step on some toes. I'm, uh, well, here we go. Watch you, you in front of a group of black kids and I tell you to teach gospel, you're gonna be able to do it? No. No, because no. you're not equipped with the tools to do it. Mm -hmm. So it goes back to white supremacy culture and power hoarding. I want to, keep my power as all-knowing person mm -hmm. in the center of it all. And I don't want to look a certain way in front of my kids because I don't know. But there's so much freedom and not knowing. Amen. There's a lot of freedom in not knowing because now I have the opportunity to go learn. I now have the opportunity to bring in somebody who knows more than me to teach me and my kids. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with it whatsoever. I tell my kids day one, look, I, I am your teacher, but I'm going to make some mistakes. So you feel free to make some mistakes. Things that I know, I'm going to tell you. Things that I don't know, I'm going to tell you I don't know. 
And then I'm going to go find the answer. And everybody like, all right, cool. We can roll with it. Let's go. Let's go. I, I don't, I, none of us know everything. None, none of us know everything. Mm-hmm. Well, it's okay to get some help and to learn, but you got to do some research on your own too. So don't come just ask me everything. Like it's, I, I'm going to give you some tools, but then I need you to go do the digging and get the answers. And I want one thing I want people to understand truthfully when it comes to this whole decentering thing, this is not a white person thing. Mm-hmm. White people need to decenter their voice because I teach in a school with predominantly black and Latinx kids. My goal is for all of my kids to feel beautifully seen. So, you know what I have to do? I have to go learn about Latinx culture and Latinx music. Was I taught that in college? Was I taught that growing up? Absolutely not. So I spent many a nights wrecking my brain, nervous to stand in front of my Latinx babies, making sure that I got it right. And if I didn't get it right, at least I was very close and someone would say something and tell me. Even this year, I ha- like one of my classes are predominantly Latinx. I may have like four or five Black students in that class and everyone else is Latinx. And I'm sitting here teaching them about ranchera, norteño, Tejano music. And I accidentally play a musical sample that wasn't of one of the genres. And one of my kids, he called me out on it. I didn't die in that moment. (laughs) (laughs) It is okay he was like, no, you should listen to this person. You should listen to this person. This is a great Norteño uh, artist. Y'all, it, you're not going to die if you don't know the answer. It's not going to be the end of the world. You're not going to lose control of your students. And your kids you don't, don't look at you bad. If you don't, they don't. Know, they don't look at you bad. They say, okay. And they want they want to help. They want the opportunity to they, help. They want it. When I was student teaching, that was my first time dealing with um, students that were transgender. I had never experienced that before. Um, that was my this was like my first time really working in the classroom per se, right? And there were a lot of things that I didn't understand. And I told my kids, and we had a conversation. I said, "Look, I said I need y'all to tell me about all the sexuals, so because I, I want to understand." And I want to be respectful to you. So I need you to tell me. So they was like, all right, Miss E, you got this, 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 and this mean this, and this mean that, and this mean that. And I was like, cool. And then I went home mm-hmm. and then I researched more. Amen. Because I want, I want to be respectful. I want to know. I, and, I, and because I'm nosy, I really want to know. <laughs> If you just be a little nosy and go do a little more inquiring, learn so much and it contributes to the work that you're supposed to be. You're supposed to be nosy as a teacher. You're supposed to want to go find the answer sway. And and can I add this? Not only do the kids want to, to help you and tell you, they'll also be patient with you as you learn. As you figure it out. Hello? Because you were honest with them about, I don't know. I, I don't know great example of this our theater teacher is leaving we are in the middle of doing a show who's left me (laughs) there's a lot i don't know 
listen, we can go over music all day long. I don't, I, there are things about theater I don't understand. Here's what I said to them. Hey, y'all, I ain't got it. That's literally how I said it. I said, listen, I got it. I don't know. But there are some of you in here that have theater experience. And I'm, I need your help. We all need your help. We all need to benefit from your genius. That's literally what I said. And the way they looked at me like, really? You, you, yes, yes, ma'am, yes, sir. <laughs> we need you. So when we're doing something that you know is just way left, please say something. I'm learning with you. And we're learning together. Think about how much patience the kids had to have during virtual learning. We was all trying to figure it out. Lord, oh, have mercy. Struggling. Oh, yeah. So understand that the kids are going to give you grace when you give them grace. So when you say, hey, listen, I got it. Be honest, be transparent, be upfront. I don't have it, but I'm willing to learn. Immediately, they activate and they got you back because you've now acknowledged their genius. You've acknowledged their humanity and they're going to step into that moment and they're going to rise 100% of the time. No, I was going to say that that also helps build relationship. Mm-hmm. When you have relationships, some of this stuff is just a little bit easier because you have a relationship. Mm-hmm. Even if you mess up, you'd be like, y'all, I jacked this up. And your kids would be like, you know what, Miss E? That's okay. We got you. It's all mm-hmm. good. We, we got you. We got you. So the common thing as I was, I got something to wrap it up. Uh, the common thing that I notice in all of our examples is one, those kids wanted to feel needed. Mm-hmm. So show them that they're needed. And two, one thing that everybody has in common in their story is that we want our kids to feel seen and acknowledged and loved. So when it comes back to doing the work, You have to ask yourself, what is it that you want? Do you want to build a culture of equity or do you want to build a culture of compliance? Like, oh, I have this checked off the list. I have this checked off the list. That's a culture of compliance. But when you're building an equitable culture, you're thinking about the needs of your kids And at the end of the day, it comes to, do you want the kids to feel needed? And do you want the kids to feel seen? So enjoy the journey to doing the work. That checklist, boy, that's a, that's another thing we can go and spend a whole hour talking about. Need to have a checklist. If y'all don't throw them checklists away, burn them, burn Burn. the checklist. You don't need the checklist. All right. Here's another one. It says, I'd love some great repertoire suggestions for incorporating popular on the radio, any style music in our Kodai slash CS practice. How do you select popular songs and what's your process for breaking it down and creating activities, reading selections from the music? Asking as a musician who mostly reads and does not do a lot by ear. Um, I think we all can go in on this, so I, I'm going to yield the floor, and I'll, I'll go. I won't go first this time. Ask your kids. Ask your kids. They 
<laughs> they gonna give you the answer. What which what music they all want to do? My kids are responsible. I'm I'm a high school chorus teacher, so it's a tad bit easier for me in my opinion. But we got the talk, and they were like, "Yeah, we want to do a bunch of Disney songs." And I was like, "Is this what y'all want for y'all spring concert?" They're like, "Yeah, let's do a Disney theme." I was like, "All right," and. I didn't even have to, once they said, this is a theme we're going with. I was like, okay, I'll start looking at some Disney songs. And they started suggesting them. And I went online and I found some sheet music. Some of it, not even going to hold you. I'm arranging myself. Amen. Amen. I'm arranging myself because I have what? The ear to do so. So, yeah, ask your kids. That's how you're going to form the list, at least. And, of course, you got some really good ORF arrangers, especially on the elementary level. Like I know for certain, um, Franklin, Otto, yeah. Franklin is one. Franklin Willis, definitely one. And Otto Gross, he's a beast. Hit him up and get the arrangements that your heart desires. Okay. Okay. Come on, Miss Bill. Talk to me. Yes, ask the children. Yes, ask them. That is numero uno. And then once you ask the children, think about how you learn songs on your own in the car. I keep going back to this. <laughs> but think about when you're in the car, how do you learn a song? You listen to it a bunch of times and then you sing along with it. Then you keep singing along with it until you learn it, right? So then you go over to the piano and you might pluck out the melody. You can start there and pluck out the melody. And if you're really struggling, go to Google and type in the name of the song and find the chords that go with it. There are so many, Google is is beautiful. And then if you really get fancy, you can score it yourself or find an arrangement on a bazillion music sites all over the place. But, But it starts really like, sometimes we overthink this by ear thing. We really do. We overthink. Stop overthinking this. If you get in the car and you sing along to Beyonce single ladies, ma'am, sir, guess what you're doing? <laughs> by ear. <laughs> it is by ear. That's how you learn songs. I guess that's how I learned about Bruno. I kept hearing it, by the way. <laughs> and I will talk about Bruno. So we keep, we just kept hearing it over and over and over again. And then we got it. So now I'm just on the internet looking does somebody already have this scored can i or at least the chords there because once i have the chords and i've plucked out the melody go catch me (laughs) eat eat my dust at that point because now i'm good so there are a lot of different resources that are already out there using what you already know how to do and i don't want people to overthink this and if you are struggling ask someone I love, I love what you said, your example of just listening to stuff over and over again. So when me and my sister was little, we was little, not professional people. We were just little kids who were a part of the church youth choir. And because we were both choir directors, we listened to the radio over and over and over again. And then we would write out the words. So... Jasmine, I'm probably a little bit older than I'm a lot older than you. So when things like Aladdin's what's the what's the main song in Aladdin? A whole new world. 
So when a whole new world came out, there was no Google or nothing. I set my tail by the radio and listened to the words. Then I pressed pause. I wrote them down. Then I pressed rewind and I listened to them again to make sure I had the. That's how you learn. <laughs> so yeah, when I'm when I'm because I teach a lot of gospel, I listen to what they sing. So if they sing joy, then I'm gonna go to the piano and say, no, where's this note at? I'm gonna find that note on the piano. And they sing joy, I'm gonna find that note. And they sing joy, then I'm gonna find that note. And I'm gonna say, okay, look at what kind of chord that is. Then I'm gonna take this big music brain that I've been trained to do. And I say, okay, well this chord should go to this place because I was taught how to do that. Did we not sit in, did we not sit in class and they teach us how these chords are supposed to function? Thank you. We all had melodic and rhythmic dictations and oral skills, one, two, and three, and four. Like, yeah, it's the same thing, but with the radio and not a teacher in front of you on the keyboard. So if you want to score, write down the notes, figure out the, the rhythm, and score it. Amen. And if you can't score it, you can go to Fiverr. And you can have somebody score it for you. For you. Or they now have music. You have, they have these plans now where if you play or sing it, it'll automatically score it for you. If you just want to read it, if that's your deal. And the sad part is I get it. I already know why people freak out about it because they don't want the fact that they don't know something exposed. So the root of this is, the root of this is you don't want to be vulnerable and you don't want to fail right? You don't, you know that this is not the way you learned it in training. And so you think probably on a soul level that you're betraying your training. You're not, you're using it because we didn't sit through theory one, two, three, and four for, for us to never use it. Okay. You're literally putting it into action. So at the end of the day, you're not betraying anyone. You're not failing. There is no quote proper way. You have to do what's best for you and your kids. And if it works, it works. And and also be very cautious of this excuse. I don't think my kids will be able to learn this way. That's a lie from hell. It's a lie, one, because I've seen some kids of all races, color, creed pick up on music the drop of a hat but out yesterday and they and they are already quoting it word for word yeah so no yeah yeah ma'am the first songs that we learn we learn them by right here you learn the alphabet song by By ear you learn twinkle twinkle itsy bitsy spider all them other little songs that we did as kids we learned them by ear somebody sang it to you and you sang it back it ain't changed. Stop making yes. Let's stop making this stuff hard, y'all. This stuff ain't also, changed. Also, you you gotta start finding that balance within mm-hmm. your classroom mm-hmm. of teaching sight reading by note and by rope. You've got to because if you're not, now you're cheating your kids out of opportunities. Yes. Because when 
a Sunday's best winner called my students to back them up before a Clark Sisters concert as an opening act. And we only had like one run through and we had to catch them parts before we went on stage. If they weren't able to hear that thing, they would not have been able to say, oh, I sang backup for this person. Even when they graduate or maybe even while they're in school and people start to call on them to gig, they've got to be able to pick these songs up at the drop of a hat. And some artists, they're releasing new music. So some of these things you can't even go to YouTube and find. You've got to start finding that delicate balance between teaching by notes and teaching by rote. Because if you don't, not only are you robbing yourself of the opportunity to become a better musician, now you're robbing your kids of that same opportunity. And I'm gonna tell you something else. My strong listeners are strong readers. Because mm-hmm. you gotta be able to hear it. Because they can read it. So my strongest readers are my strongest listeners, 100% of the time. And the unfortunate part is they're always dismissed because they don't quote, look the part. Mm. But they'll read anybody under the table, but they can pick up something that they heard in 30 seconds because they're strong. You go to a John Legend concert, they're going to call you up on stage. He's not handing you sheet music, ma'am, sir. Yeah, they ain't. Yeah. They're, they're not. And so we have to teach our students a way to function in both environments. We are doing them a disservice when we don't do that because of our own insecurities. Mm. And if somebody was to do that in math, you would have a whole fit. If they only taught you how to add and not how to subtract, we would have we would we would protest and have complete fits. So be a whole music teacher and teach everything not just the half that you can do. Um, I remember my first time like conducting a Bach uh, chorale. I was scared. To, I was scared to death. Was terrified. And my ear, which I normally I rely heavily on my ear, my ear was failing me because it was two parts going at the same time and I couldn't catch when one part was ending and the other part was, was beginning. So I had to take my time and break down that score so that I could teach it. It's the same thing. Mm-hmm. It, I, I took my time. And yet, was it humbling? Yes, it was humbling. Yes, 100% it was. But did I get it? Yes. I put in the work and I got it. One more thing on this. Please make a point to listen to music outside of your comfort. Hallelujah. Holy cow. Okay. Because what I hear in gospel, even though it's similar to some things in R&B, it's not always the same. Yes, true. So I have to be very intentional about listening to a lot of different styles of music because chord structure is different in different styles. I mean, just how the whole thing is set up is different. I have to be very intentional about listening to things outside of my comfort zone. So no matter what place I find myself, I can hear it. I can hear it. So that's something we don't talk about enough is making sure even in our personal time that we're listening to a lot of different things so that we're ready. Now you brought up, oh, go ahead. Uh, I was going to say, just because you don't listen to it on a regular basis doesn't mean 
there's no value in it. Right. You just can't hear it. And that's one of the main reasons why when I went to TMEA, I said I was going to, when I made the doggone title of the uh, presentation, I was like, I don't even know how I'm going to do it. But when I sat down and really did that thing, I was like, it makes sense. Using hip hop to teach secondary choral methods and teaching music literacy and teaching how to hear things and teaching, like it makes absolute sense. And the more and more I thought about it, I do it all the time. So just because you don't see the value in a specific genre of music doesn't mean that there is no value. And there's probably a whole lot of value in it to your kids mm-hmm. who should, we should be putting first in the first place. So don't be afraid to step out your comfort zone. And, but, but again, being a whole music teacher, my students have to know about all these various genres of music. My kids, uh, where I'm at Sumner High School, baby, they don't care about no classical music. That ain't their thing. They, 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 ain't none of them probably going to study classical music. But they have to know. You have to know. You have to know about your classical music. You got to know about your country music. You got to know about the jazz. You got to know about the blues. You got to know about barbershop. You got to know about all of it. Because you will not leave my class and say, I was taught by Maria Antoinette and didn't learn all the stuff. The devil. <laughs> no, you won't say it about me. You won't do that. Um, somebody says, so back to it, they said, what is your process for breaking it down? We talked about that. Listen to it. Creating activities. Um, I think music, music musicians are some of the most creative people in the world. I think we are the original uh, creatives. Creators. Creatives, yep. Yeah, we're the originals. So... If you go and you hum a tune, um, I made up a whole gospel arrangement of we don't talk about Bruno just sitting up in my house, just just playing around with the song. Mm-hmm. My choir do it in, um, for the next concert. You'll, you'll get to hear it. I'm about to say, that sounds like a bop already. I want to hear it. <laughs> but that's just me sitting around the house just playing around with just with the song, just being goofy with the song. Um, so... Be goofy, have fun. Your kid, your kids will enjoy that. They enjoy seeing us doing, you know, being something other than stiff teachers. Yeah, and I, I also want to say, don't be afraid to explore things outside of your art form. And I think that contributes a lot to my creative process as well. One, like pulling in the stuff that I'm passionate about, like culinary arts. It's the reason why I was able to mix music and munchies or music and cooking into music and munchies or like my love for hip hop or my love for education or my love for sports and movies, like just thinking about those things, but also like learning, once again, building those relationships with your kids, learning what they're passionate about. Because when you're determined to have your kids feel seen, you're going to want to get to know everything that they're passionate about so that you can bring in the classroom. It's just like dating. When you're trying to impress somebody, when you're trying to show them that you care about them, you're going to appeal to what they're passionate about. Just like that. Do that for your kids. Figure out what it is that they care about find a way to bring it to the music that contributes to your creative process as well. What do you think so far? 
There was a lot to mine in this discussion, and this is only part one. For me, one of many interesting parts of their discussion was the talk about learning by ear. This is something I think about all the time, honoring and uh, valuing learning by ear, learning by rote, and what that means for trying to become literate with Western notation. And I'm going to always remember what Maria said, be a whole music teacher. As I mentioned earlier, you can find out more about our three guests on the podcast website, as well as links to some of the people and resources they mentioned. I hope you will come back for part two of this important discussion of where we are in music ed and where we need to be going. By the way, if you want in on the yarn ball giveaway I mentioned on Facebook, email me at docstrong26 at gmail.com. When you email me, let me know one of the two names that were mentioned by Jasmine, Maria, and Carla as composers and arrangers who can help teachers create arrangements for their singers. I'll give you a bonus entry if you name both of them. I will announce the winner over on Music Ed with Missy on April 2nd. I want to give a shout out and another huge thank you to the newest Buy Me A Coffee supporters who have shown up over at buymeacoffee.com slash missystrong. I hope you have been able to successfully use some of the resources and graphics and ideas I've shared so far. I look forward to adding more. So at the Earl Grey level, Mary Salonic, Allie Gibbons, Mary Barron, Kristen Benoit, Jennifer Greenhatcher, Megan Hauk, Stephanie Kramer, Diane Spielman, Megan Beard, Damon Clevenger, Rachel Haar, Vanessa Lim, Emily Sternberg, Michelle Brinkman, Leslie Martin, Jocelyn Mattingly, Andrea Nigro, Stacy Schumacher, Katie DeFonzo, Jordan Ellers, and Debbie McGilvray. And at our super fancy afternoon tea level, Val Luther, Katie McDaniel, Allison Lawson, Abby Miller, Stephanie T, Carol Svinkowski, Ann Tyler, Ashley Ferrara, Anne Dubose Lee, Cynthia Messersmith, Stephanie Kramer, Kylie Peterson, Stephanie Jansen, Eve Minter, Alyssa DiNapoli, Sheila Zerby, and the one and only Connie Greenwood. First of all, I would like to apologize because I'm sure I botched some of those names, but I appreciate you so much. And I love seeing so many names that I have seen for a long time and so many names that are new to me. Thank you for your help. And I can't believe there are 184 followers, 159 supporters, and 138 members contributing monthly to supporting me and the work of this podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. For questions about the podcast, write to me at docstrong26 at gmail.com, or you can reach out to Music Ed with Missy on Facebook or Music Ed with Missy on Instagram. And of course, on Twitter at DocStrong26. Our podcast music was composed and performed by Jeremy and Owen Strong. Jeremy also serves as the audio engineer 
and editor for the podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe and rate it wherever you listen. And if you wouldn't mind sharing it with others, that would help us to get the word out. As always, I want to say thank you for spending some time with me. I know you are busy and I know that life demands so much from you, especially right now. I hope it was worthwhile and that you're motivated to reflect on your philosophy and your practice. I'll see you next time. But until then, keep doing all you can to create a more musical, joyful, thoughtful, just world for your students, families, and community. 